Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Our guest on this week's episode is the author Scarlett Thomas. Her new book, Oligarchy, is out through Canongate now. And she's in the studio with Robin and a returning Josie Long. A quick reminder, as always, about some of our upcoming events. If you're listening to this episode on the day of release, the first nine lessons and carols for curious people of the year is tomorrow at the Lowry in Salford slash Manchester. I'm recording this intro about 10 days before the episode goes out, so I imagine there are very few tickets left for tomorrow and Saturday at the Lowry. So if you are in the area and at a loose end for the next couple of nights, come on over and see us there. Or we'll be at King's Place in London on the 12th and the 13th and the 19th and the 21st, plus a special family matinee on the 15th. Robin and Josie and Beck Hill and Simon Singh and Chris Jackson and Dan Davis and Matthew Cobb and Lucy Green and Helen Chersky and lots of other people as well. And I should mention, uh, as well as all profits from the Nine Lessons show is going to charity as usual, we will once again be collecting for the Trussell Trust at each of the Nine Lessons shows. Yes, it is utterly absurd that we need food banks in the UK, but unfortunately we do. So if you'd like to bring something along for that collection, there'll be a place for you to drop uh, items at the Lowry and also at King's Place and also at the Compendium of Reason with Robin and Brian Cox at the Hammersmith Apollo. If you go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons and scroll down the bottom, we have a list there of the most urgently needed items from the Trussell Trust. So have a look at that and then uh, if you're able to uh, bring something along for that collection, we uh, would be very grateful for that. And thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. Book Shambles would not be possible without your support on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. You can go there to pledge support for the show or you can support us by buying something from the online shop at cosmicshambles.com slash shop, uh, signed copies of Robin's book, uh, the Cosmic Superheroes comic book with Josie in it, book bags, shirts, all that sort of stuff, and there'll be some exclusive Nine Lessons merch available there in the new year if it doesn't all sell out at uh, the Nine Lessons gigs. Now, on to this week's episode. Here is Robin and Josie and Scarlett. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. I'm very pleased to say that Josie is back. Hello, it's so nice to be back. My daughter is nearly 18 months old. I have been ill solidly for the two months since she started doing two days a week at nursery. So I am in prime position. You are nothing more than a petri dish now filled (laughs) with fascinating things for biochemists and biologists in terms of... And my friend took her baby to the soft play and she wrote, um, just really wanting to keep my son up to date with all the new viruses. And that's how I feel at the moment. Really up to date. 
It is. It's a very, very exciting time, isn't it? And to, to be part of this evolutionary experiment where mutation, mutation, heredity and natural selection will decide, will Josie Long survive? <laughs> um, we're joined by Scarlett Thomas, who's uh, written a fantastic uh, new novel, which I've just started, which is, uh, well, in fact, 18 months old is nothing. The horror for your daughter is uh, your your. No, I say oh, I should say hello first of all. But hello, I'm Hi. quite manic because I've had a lot of things to do today <laughs> and too many things to do today. We're on top form. We're, uh, let me take the book back. <laughs> Babies no, are really dangerous, though, aren't they? Like they're so covered in germs. Incubators. At all times. Yeah. This, the germs yeah. are more potent due to the fact that they're in this tiny little vial, <laughs> and then when they get to you, they like run riot on yeah. the adult scale. It's amazing, amazing how we all survive. But that that is one of the things that I always find remarkable when when people you know get that kind of alpha humanity sense of our we are you know when they're looking at, at, at climate change and all those other things we'll we'll destroy everything and you go it takes things very very small microscopic <laughs> things to pop up into your nose or through a cut and then you die so don't think that you because you're five for eight or whatever and you go to the gym there still might be something very small floating in the air and it's going to kill you. I like how five foot eight is a tall height for you. No, it's not tall. I just mean five foot <laughs> no, eight. No. And what I did was I decided I didn't want to pick on people who weren't my height. I'm actually five foot nine and a half. So that's in fact five ten actually. I think now <laughs> I might be going up and down. I might start going down again. I can't remember what time you start shrinking. But I, my, my feet though are getting larger. I don't know what's going on. It must be that clown gene. The recessive clown gene has suddenly kicked in, making my feet um, uh, longer than they used to be. We're going to start right off by just talking about because I, I this your your book oligarchy. Um, it's about uh, a Russian teenager going to uh, a, a girls' boarding school in England. And, oh, man, in the first few pages, it f- the, horror the horror of going into that in- environment, the horror of, I mean, very early on, you start off with one of the girls explaining that there must be three diamonds yep. on the way from foot to waist. Yes. Yeah, well... Um, if you stand with your legs sort of together, you're supposed to have three diamonds, um, calf to knee, no, um, ankle to calf, calf to knee, and then knee to the thigh gap. We all know about thigh gaps. Don't ever look up thigh gap on the internet. It's very distressing. Um, so, yeah, they all want to be thin, and it's kind of all they've got to do because they've been locked in this boarding school in Hertfordshire. And incidentally, it was, I think for legal reasons, I can't say it was the school I went to, but it was pretty similar to the school I well, went that's to. what I was wondering is how much yeah. of this came from because uh, this is it ain't no Mallory Towers <laughs> um, and it, it has but that because I, th- I think it's one of the hardest things I was just saying you know uh, now my son's gone to secondary school and you see this point where you know of course, girls, when they're hitting puberty at different kind of levels, so yeah. suddenly some of them become very tall and now think they're adults at the age of 12. And so, you know, all of that that disparity. And it brought back very viscerally, you know, for, for me as well, you know, as, 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 as a whatever approximation of a male that I am, you know, just the horror of all of those changes. And you mentioned quite early on they're studying Angela Carter, who, of course, dealt in, in various different novels and short stories with different ideas of the transition from child to to adult. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrifying time, isn't it? I mean, babies are bad, but teenagers are maybe worse. I don't know. You've got this to come, Josie. I'm terrified, but mainly because I wish to protect her so deeply and so emotionally. (laughs) The idea of anything or anyone ever harming her in any way is Uh, Yeah, don't don't read the book. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm... 
So I, if you, you mentioned that kind of, it comes partly from experience of that background in, in some way. Like, how did you get to a point where you felt able to write this book, to have processed that culture, those experiences, and to be able to now come at it in this way? Yeah, it was a complete accident, this book. I didn't set out to write it. Uh, it's kind of a long story. And I have to say that um, I only went to boarding school for two years. Before that, I went to like a sync comprehensive in Essex. And so I was ripped out of that. And You've had adventures through the class boarding... system like me. Really? <laughs> oh, I have you as well. Yeah, totally. Well, like, yeah. yeah, I found out who my dad was when I was 12 it was somebody different from who I thought it was. So who I thought it was was a guy we lived with on a council estate in Barking. And then my real dad was the manager of OMD. Imagine that. (laughs) Really, the 1980s um, electronica group for those of you who are younger than me. Electricity is the best place to start, I think, in terms of their singles. But that is uh, that (laughs) bit. No, no, I just. Do you mind me asking how that happened? Is that something that you feel comfortable talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. um, I was locked in a cupboard talking about it on Five Live the other day. It was a bit distressing. (laughs) That Um, sounds like a punishment. No, I've 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 hit rock bottom with talking about it, so it's fine. No. um, uh, What do you want to know? I think. um, Yeah, my mum sort of had a bit of an affair back in the day, and. Um, her then husband agreed to bring me up as his and then he disappeared to America, became a heroin addict, all very messy in his life, which was really sad. And then one day I was sat down by my mum and the family friend who always bought me really big presents. And I'm a bit slow at catching on to things, it turns out, because they were like, so Steve isn't your father. And I was like, oh, who is Duh. <laughs> so there he was and it was actually quite glamorous and exciting at first but then I got sent off to Mexico to stay with my German grandmother long story also um, and so yeah I had adventures in the class system and in uh, kind of foreignness and nationalities anyway went to stay with my grandmother she decided I was common read me loads of Jilly Cooper that didn't work <laughs> so when I Jilly got Cooper would I sort you out. she oh was like God. well it was um was it class that was Jilly Cooper wasn't yeah, it and right, she was yeah. obsessed with that book and she read it to me she was like you do understand don't you, you do understand how to be middle class don't you and you are going to go to Oxford and do PPE aren't you and no. So anyway, I got home and then all the prospectuses for boarding school started turning up because I was going to be kind of made acceptable. It didn't work. I got pretty much expelled. But that is, I mean, I, I'm fascinated with that idea. Talking with Russell Kane about this the, 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 mm-hmm. the other day as well, which is um, because he comes from what he would call upper working class. Uh, no one in his family would go to university. It would yeah. be considered an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. Um and, I, and various people that I've spoken to that and Mark Steele I don't know if you know the, the comedian Mark Steele um, he uh, brought up in Swanley which is one of uh, Kent's less salubrious towns yes and uh, I live in Kent and I don't even know where Swanley is no it's, it's, it's Swanley is, and, and oh. it's yeah and, sorry, and, no but it is definitely less salubrious isn't it than a lot of the other Kentish towns it's kind of you know Mark doesn't speak of it or write of it with, with you know he was brought up there and it was all fine but, but Mark and then brought up very much in a kind of uh 
the, the tradition of socialism and all that. He then uh, just was interested in finding out years later, I mean, in, in his 40s, probably maybe even 50s, in fact, he found out that his uh, birth father was uh, someone who was a multimillionaire who built loads of uh, um, things up in, in New York and used to play cards with Lord Lucan. So what you're saying so, is there's still a chance that I could come from money. That's what you're yeah, telling me. But that's, that, but I'm fascinated certain that that bit which Dennis Potter used to write about it in, in, in Nigel Barton, the, the Nigel mm. Barton plays folk. Nigel Barton stand up Nigel Barton where you know he came from as a uh, you know Forrester Dean kind of mining community and and uh, very, and then he ends up going to Oxford and he finds himself in this situation of where his family at home are oh what's our son become and the people at university mm. are mm, what on earth is this mm. and that bit of the, I just wondered whether the loss of a sense of the loss of belonging, that, that sense of where am I now? Yeah. Whether you had any a battle with, and uh, you know, already you're having a battle with uncertainty because of the age that you are and all of those kind of things, but also that battle with uncertainty. Yeah, completely, because um, exactly as you say, I turned up at school and I'd um, that summer before I went to my German grandmother in Mexico, I'd had my hair cut off and peroxided and I thought I looked like Madonna and who's that girl? Um, but it didn't really work at boarding school <laughs> they were like what are you um and so I set about growing out my hair trying to look like them I was never going to be like them because you know they came from real money and they did things like they'd come to London and go to balls do you remember <laughs> wild child 1980s oh, kind God, of Emma stuff? Ridley yeah exactly yeah, yeah all, all of that and and I'd go home and think, I just can't ask my mum and my stepdad to a source of academics. So I had a third source of class, which was this source of intellectual boho thing going on. That was what I went home to by this point because my mum, well, Steve had gone off to the States and my mum had remarried uh, my lovely stepfather. And so, yeah, I'd be surrounded by books on Freud and Marx and um, stuff. And I just couldn't say, can you buy me a ball gown so I can go and hang out with all the Tories in London. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's interesting how much, like, and I really completely identify with so much of, just in terms of, like, my parents what my mum was really focused on was a kind of intellectualism and yet we had no money and yet my stepdad was a completely different class to us. All this like yeah, weird stuff yeah. like that. But at the same time, how much one individual can come into contact with through the course of even just like an adolescence, how much change there can be and how difficult it then goes on to talk about like something like class in Britain um, is like, it blows my mind. Um, yeah, I mean, our council flat was just you know, just a pretty sort of standard gross council flat with brown carpets that, I don't know, um, I remember my non-father Steve used to kind of just be smoking a fag and then just flick the ash on the carpet and rub it in with his foot. That was what people did. And then, you know, the next minute I was, well, moving out to Essex and this different life and then, 
you know, boarding school was so different. But we used to sit at boarding school and watch um, Dirty Dancing again and again and again and flash dance and practice taking our bras off under our jumpers like Jennifer Beale does in flash dance. And so that was like another world. So So still life skills, very important life skills. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That and how to make a a, um, toasted sandwich spread sandwich which is yeah your use of sandwich spread in is disgusting i was having breakfast when i was reading your <laughs> you book weren't eating sandwich and spread. then i was fortunately i don't have sandwich spread for breakfast i'm very traditional it's a lunchtime treat isn't it <laughs> um and uh just yes it, it's it was uh it was vivid sorry yeah it get i'm afraid the book gets more vivid and i did a a reading the other night in quite a polite village somewhere in the East Midlands and I set about reading this section I thought this is a funny section and I got to the middle and realised oh this is the tampon bit ha! Um, and then I did the poo reading after that so that didn't go down that well. And do you enjoy writing things that are quite I, I think vivid is such a great euphemistic word but uh, like is <laughs> that something you really enjoy? Um, not usually but I kind of um, another long story that I'm going to make really short for you is a few years ago I I tried playing tennis for a year to see how far I could get in my age group, which is 40 plus women. Um, got to number six in the country, had oh a nervous God. breakdown. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Um, and then to recover from that, I wrote children's fiction, um, source of it was all a series of accidents. Um, but I thought kids' fiction would be all gentle and lovely, and for so many reasons it's not at all. Um, but I had to go around schools, so I had to go around schools, talk to children, and it all just reminded me how gross children are, schools are, teachers are, everything is. And also you can be quite sort of visceral with kids' fiction as well. You can go quite dark. Kids love snot and mm. stuff like that, don't they? So. Um, I think it took me back into that more exaggerated world. So, yeah, this is definitely my grossest book. That's what I love with that kids' world. I, I went to see Mr Gum and the Dancing Bear, which uh, Andy Stanton's brilliant mm. Mr Gum books. Have you heard them? Yeah. They, he reads them brilliantly. They are wonderful bits of writing. And, and I loved, again, his, his, the, the, it's in no way patronised. Like this kids' musical at the National Theatre, um, Gary Wilmot and uh, Steve First, amongst others. Oh, and, and it starts off with uh, the, the butcher and Mr Gum trying to find some beer. And they're looking for a can of Red Stripe that's got beer in it, right? And, and it was like just this bit and all these kids going, what's going on? They're looking under our chair. We've no beer in this one, Mr Gum. And then there's this bit of a really... And, and I love that bit, which it's there's no patronising, nothing like yeah. that. And, and then there's a beautiful scene where Mr Gum just goes, check it's full, check it's full. So they open it and empty it out to check it's full and then go, oh... It's empty, <laughs> but it's yeah. I, I think there's some, some really wonderful darkness, mm. you know, and uh, yeah. But but yeah. I should say my 18 month old daughter does adult strength and loudness farts, adult loudness. Yeah. From a from a tiny place. Just so you know, if you were hoping that eventually that would be the way you'd make money out of her, very often the farts go down. Oh. It's a terrible thing. The two <laughs> things I noticed was the farts get quieter and your two year old's love of Nick Cave fades out at the age of five, which I found very disappointing. Maybe they found out My two year old loved Nick Cave in the bad seats. Maybe they found out some of the terrible yeah, you've got to move comments he made recently, trying to suggest <laughs> that anti fascists are the same as fascists when they're not. They're the opposite. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> but that, Josie, when she was asking for, I, I, I find it very interesting about 
when you move far enough away from events that you can start writing them down. Because mm. I think that's true of a lot of authors and a lot of comedians and a lot of different artists that I've seen. You were not able to, if, if you were 25 and you, you, were, you were writing books and you wanted to write this book set in a, a public school with the visions that you see, you, I, you may well have been able to do. But overall, I think there's a certain point of distance where you go, mm. oh, everything's come together now. And it's used to, yeah. you know, now in, in your, you were saying you're over 40 now and that, that bit of going, now I can write this book. Yeah, or even that that was a thing because it's remarkable how you miss the good things to write about. Like you miss the things about you that are interesting. And when I was 18, I thought I was really boring. I'd had all this life and I thought I was really unremarkable and my friends were more interesting. And I don't know, I, I started this thinking that I wanted to write about power and cliques and who decides what happens in an institution. And I'm in a university at the moment and it was partially inspired by some stuff that was happening there. Um, and then I also just wanted to write about this girl coming from Russia and going to boarding school. And then I was a bit like, oh, duh, didn't I go to boarding school? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll use that as inspiration. And then as soon as she arrived there, what are they all doing? They're looking at their legs and going on diets. Well, that's it. I mean, the way because you almost immediately go through, you, you go straight into their kind of minds, the physical you know, issues that each one of the sees. Like there's one girl with too many diamonds because she's so thin, you know, the, on that. Yeah. And, the, and then, as I was saying before, you know, the buttery, greasy skin and all yeah, of those different issues zone. that cannot yeah. be. Um, did you find, I mean, in terms of your, I mentioned before, you know, you mentioned Angela Carter. Did, was she somewhere within your, when you first started writing, was she someone who would have been on your shelf where you thought, ah, this is, because uh, I think most of us have something, don't we, where we go, oh man, all of these words that I've read from other people have made me want to write words too. Yeah, so my two kind of uh, books during the rising of oligarchy were Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter and The Prime Minister Jean Brodie by Muriel Spark. Um and just reading and rereading the Prime Miss Jean Brodie, which I had by you know on my desk as a kind of talisman while I was writing, because um, just the construction of her sentences, the brutality of it, but the the humanness as well. And Miss Jean Brodie is such a terrible person, but she's also so brilliant. She's so compelling, um, and the stories of the girls and what happens to them, and ju- and just the darkness in it, I absolutely love. She is amazing. I've only recently started. I read The Driver's Seat. Have you read that one? That sounded too scary for oh, me. Oh, man, it's so uh, strange. It it's basically, it, starts, it, it starts off in this wonderful way, because I just read it and then I watched a film called In Fabric, which I highly recommend as well, which is a dark and strange horror film with Julian Barrett, amongst others. But um, it starts off with a woman trying on this dress, and it's a very kind of lurid dress with a lot of colours in it. It's, it's, it's kind of the, the book was written in the late 60s. Um, and... Uh, then the person selling the dress goes, I can't remember whether it's, it, it, it's stainless or it's wiped clean. I think it's, she says it's a stainless dress, it can't get stained. And then suddenly the woman trying to go, well, how dare you? I don't want this dress, how dare you? What are you trying to say, stainless? As it, you know, and then, so you go, this is a, a weird moment in a shop. And then from a very early stage, so this is not a spoiler at all, you know the character that you're following is going to die. And you don't know, you know she's going to be murdered. And it has this fantastic ability of, you know, where it's the real world, but it's also not. 
It's that point where the world, everything about it, somehow has a feeling that this is. You know, when you sometimes, when you're very, very tired or you're on codeine, you the, the world <laughs> just the kind life of, of Robin is. Yeah, that's, uh, those are my choices. How, how do you reach a your hallucinatory state? What kind of mushrooms do you use? I use tiredness or codeine. Sometimes a little bit of both. But, I find three glasses of white wine does it for me. But Ooh, with codeine, lovely. with codeine, just smudge the edges. Yes, or they don't try this at home, everyone, because it's quite dangerous. But I mean, fun. When what, three glasses of wine or codeine? Both together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no you're right. Not, it is. But really dangerous. I remember comparing a gig with codeine and I felt... I felt it's the most I've ever felt... You know, ready Break never did that thing where you had... Oh, I've had Ready Break. I've got a little red outline. No, nah, that didn't work. Codeine did. Anyway, look, I've just got something <laughs> on about codeine. Um, but, so, but, but no, I haven't finished yet. I'm just of course, on the driver's course. seat and I'm on codeine. Um, but I'm psychosomatically on codeine now. It's an absolute about bloody disaster. About to be murdered. Um, but yeah, and, and, it, and it just... It is... It, the, the world that she's in is... You know it's real but it's also not real mm. and it's and it's and that's what I meant about coding where everything you know when you get a certain distance from reality so you're walking through reality but at the same time you feel that you are a narrator within it mm-hmm. rather than actually yes. so all of those figures are somehow the dimensions of the figures around you and that's what it kind of feels like and it's literally a book you pick up like a lot of her work I think almost all of her work it's very short you know it's kind of they just you go like girls of slender means as well yes. they just but I'd never realised, I know Ian Rankin's a huge fan, you know when you go, like Gene Reese and you know oh, yeah. Barbara Cummins and people like that, you suddenly pick up a book and you go, right, why have I never read these, you bloody idiot. The second half of the 20th century has a lot to answer for in denying <laughs> people the legacy they deserved as writers because, oh my God, and by people I mean women. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and Elizabeth Taylor, have you ever read her? <gasps> no. Mrs. Palfrey. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, Angel's my favourite, but Mrs. Palfrey oh, just is brilliant that. as well. Oh my God, it's the best book ever. It's literally the best book ever. Do you ever. think she suffered in the way that David Mitchell now yes. suffers? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Which one do you I, mean? I, I yeah. genuinely think she does. Yeah, I genuinely I agree. think yeah, people see Elizabeth Taylor and because it's connected to someone who's one of the biggest 20th century icons. And also, you, if it was the actor, you'd think, well, she can't be as good at writing as she yeah, was. Exactly. <laughs> well, she did start writing not well. Oh, she, no. I think her name was put on novels, wasn't it? Or she st- oh, they were actually, I, I don't know, but... But yeah, Mrs. Palfrey. So Angel, I've not not read. Oh my God, it's so dark. And it is another one of those where because a woman wrote it, because she's got a stupid film star name, because they package the books up to look all girly, they look a bit twee, but actually it's the darkest and funniest thing ever. I think it shares a sense of humour. I've tried to rip off a sense of humour from it, is how I should say it, honestly. But it shares a sense of humour with oligarchy. It's super dark. It's about this woman who writes the most terrible commercial fiction ever but becomes really rich doing it and everyone thinks she's taking the piss like she's just um it's basically satire and it's not it's deadly <laughs> deadly serious and yeah it's it's so funny and so dark so we've talked a lot about darkness and dark fiction is that something that you feel really drawn to is that your favorite thing to read um dark humor yes dark darkness no so if i know a character's going to get murdered then i'm not going to read that i just can't cope with the tension I think the last time I did that was probably London Fields in the 1990s I was like oh the murderer the murderee but I'm over that now Um, yeah I don't really do violence anymore exactly but um, but yeah that kind of humour where you don't know if you're supposed to laugh or not and it's really close to kind of authentic experience the things that you think but don't say that's what I want to write basically the things that people think but don't say or don't even admit to thinking you know there's a voice in the back of your head going 
oh, well, that person's a bit fat and I wish they'd die. And like, all, and you think, I'm not that person. I'm not thinking those things. Um, and then to let that voice come to the front and see what it's actually saying and, and see if we can like accept people, even though we all have that horrible voice. Does that make sense? It does. I'm glad you said that because I was worried because we'd never met before and I've been having quite a fraught day and I just stormed into the recording studio <laughs> and went, Ah, oh, God, I'm having one of those days where I just want the whole world to get out of my way. And now I realise that you too have this innate evil. Yeah, so I think I everyone feel... does. I think it's what brings us together as humans. But that, yeah, that's a very interesting... Is there a point where... When you're writing, if you bring that too much to the forefront, you think, ah, oh, I've now made... Because that, I think that's that's quite a hard thing to do, isn't it? Which mm. is what, the, as you said, that very often they're passing thoughts and very often they are... It's like when we had Charles Fernhoff on... on, on oh, actually, no, you, you, we did it in Manchester. And um, Charles Fernhoff said, uh, who does a lot of stuff about the internal monologues, and he said, you, what you have to realise is sometimes what you're hearing in your head is the noise of the machinery. So sometimes the things are, are, are barely our thoughts at all. Yeah, you see absolutely. something, there is a trigger. Mm. Uh, the trigger, once analysed by your frontal lobes, is kind of like, nah, I'm not that person. Mm. And that bit that when it can get elevated, is there a point where you go, oh, I think the reader will find this too monstrous because I've made it too much at the forefront as if that is actually too much part of that that human being? I think... For me, as long as it is authentic and comes out of a kind of honest place, broadly it seems to work. Um, so what I wouldn't feel comfortable comfortable about doing is inventing a character that has nothing to do with me and then trying to make up what their dark thoughts might be. I can only really do ones I've had. So there's a bit where um, Natasha, who's the central character of Oligarchy, is in the village church that the girls from the school have to go to every week. And she starts praying for the villagers that they might be less fat and less ugly and that their husbands might love them more. And so with that, it's obviously an awful thing to look at the villagers and go, they're fat, they're ugly. Um, but at the same time, is Natasha nice because she's praying for them not to be or for them to be loved anyway? And there is a kind of honesty in her thoughts, even though we might not want to admit that we share them so that's where I'm trying to play around on that kind of edge but you know it works for some people and not for others obviously so you're writing a bit about diet culture and how it brutalizes young women and how it kind of takes over yeah their whole uh approach to viewing the world yes absolutely and um it's interesting that I sort of grappled with this halfway through. I was like, I can't write this. I can't talk about this. I can't. This is too dark. It's too triggering. It's too much like a manual for girls. But then on the other hand, fire up Instagram or watch literally any Hollywood film, any advert, anything where a young woman is depicting, quotes, normal or normality. And what you see is something that could not be achieved without an eating disorder. And that's... That's a lie that we all tell ourselves every day that that is not what's happening out there. So, you know, at least being honest about it means you can discuss it. You are right. I mean, I do find it when you watch older films and then once you get, I'm not sure when it is, somewhere in the 80s, somewhere in the late 70s, you start to go. (laughs) No, I think it's earlier than that. You do, yeah, you watch and you just go, there is, every now and again, there's a homely character and that's it. 
there is a homely character, as they, and that's exactly yeah. what they're meant to be, who will not be within the very... I mean, I, I find it interesting in comic books as well. Even comic books by people from who would be, you know, generally socially progressive, etc., more often than not, comic books still involve people of a very specific uh, shape. What I would say is I think there is definitely moves away from it. I wouldn't say that it means that therefore everything's better and I think in some cases it's worse alongside it. Mm. I think it's such an interesting time at the moment because I see people striking out against it and writing really, really cool, rebellious um, books and Instagrams and everything about it. And rebellious is probably the wrong word, like Real, honest, good, heartening. Um, Lizzo. Yeah. Oh, my God. 100%. The, the idea of having a pop star who's so, like, good and natural and yeah. real and normal and But isn't that always one? Isn't that the whole point? That no, you're allowed to be in the industry like, like Beth Ditto would previously. You know, mm. that kind of, I don't know. I might be wrong. But, but, I just, but it's I, not I the mainstream. She's never going to play the normal lead, like the the romantic lead in a Hollywood film or in an advert. She's going to be the kooky outsider. I don't know. I think there have been drives towards it and I have seen Mm. mainstream things, but I don't think that means the culture is therefore healthy and that it isn't really prevalent. Mm. And I don't know how much of a flash in the pan it will be either because just because I feel like, well, you know... I've seen this, that, the other, and I'm proud of this, this, this. It doesn't mean that maybe in five years they'll be like, and you've had that now, bye. You know, (laughs) I see that with efforts to try to make the Oscars less racist and then they have about one or two years and then you can see the establishment being like, you had a go, now goodbye. You know, and so, like, it's so hard. I, I think about that just in feminist terms, like how much any progress comes with it a kind of fracturing of consequences afterwards and then a sort of fracturing of backlashes from it and so then it's like more and more complicated to manage and more and more like people can go no no it's fine no no it's worse you know (laughs) that's how I feel I I mean for me there's not enough going on in the zone that is genuinely normal Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of celebration of people who look really different from the supermodels and then there's still all the supermodels. And then that bit in the middle where you're just kind of, I don't know, kind of a medium to large type person, that that's not really celebrated. That's You don't see that, even though that is probably statistically more, quotes, normal. Um but yeah, I think there are lots of reasons for it. But what I don't like is people pretending that super skinny is normal. It's not. Let's call it for what it is. It can be beautiful. Like everybody's shape can be beautiful, but it's super hard to achieve that yeah. or impossible, really. Did you feel when you were writing this that there was some part of you that was trying to like use this to change it? Yes, I think so. But for me, um, I like to change things by being kind of defamiliarizing about them by being brutally honest by just you know pulling away the curtain and saying let's just look at this um i can do that bit and then probably other people different personalities can do the let's change it bit <laughs> but everyone's necessary do you know yeah, what i mean yeah that's what we need you need all the different types of people to get shit done was there anyone who inspired when 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 you were younger when you were, were growing up and as you said eventually kind of an academic house with you know a lot of Freud and all that kind of thing? Did you find there was a point where you started to see, I suppose, the lives of others and the lives of different kind of you know that I'll just put that wrongly really, but that bit that opens up the realization of what the world may actually be like beyond your experience? It oh, fuck that up. 
I'm not saying it the right way. Do you remember when my parents made me go to the school disco dressed all in black when the fashion was for like permed hair and wearing only cerise clothes? Well, they made you do that, did they? Well, they didn't exactly make me, but um, this was before I got sent to boarding school. Um, but all the other girls were going in pink mini skirts and they all had permed hair and earrings. And my parents were like, no, just wear black leggings and black T-shirt and have your hair all straight. And that looks, that's really cool. It's really cool to be an individual. It's like, what, like an individual, like you've just told me how to be. Can't I wear a pink belt? They were like, no. <laughs> and of course, I was the freak at the school disco. But if I went now, where, well, I'm basically wearing that now, to be honest. <laughs> so they were right. Still being dressed by your parents. Ridiculously. Yeah, um, amazing. See, that's one of the things that I've, I've never... One of the reasons I don't like The Breakfast Club, which would have been a similar time to the flash dance thing and dirty dancing, is because of the message in that. How, oh, OK. What was is, the message? Is, um, stop wearing your goth clothes. Put on a nice dress. Oh, that's so silly. Smile and I yeah. still feel that it's never been a. F- I know some people absolutely adore it. Ali I also Shady. don't have a. Fer- yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is fine, but it's never been part of my life. There's a certain kind of John Hughes thing which I've just never really. But that bit, I always thought that's a really terrible thing to to go. Her problem is she's a bit gothy. She's not like Molly Ringwald enough. No. Yeah, I know. Um, whereas Heather's is amazing. Yeah, I've not returned to that for years. I'm I'm worried about, you know, that bit where there are certain things where, certainly with children's shows and stuff, where you go, I remember the fact this had on me. I remember the excitement of watching that film and the weird bit. It opens with the croquet scene, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It stands up, actually. It really does. Um, it's, It's still kind of amazing. Although apparently it doesn't work on teenagers now. Oh no, why? I don't know exactly. I wonder whether Mean Girls works on teenagers now. That's only about 15 years I never old. liked, I found Mean Girls too twee compared with Heather's personally. <laughs> to be fair, I mean, it, it, like, if that's your start point is Heather's, yes. you are going to be like, where's the killings? <laughs> Come on guys, <laughs> where's the killings? Well, I don't <laughs> like killings, so the, I don't know why. The bizarre thing about <laughs> mineral water, that they, they lead the, the two jocks that they murder. Yeah, they're gay because uh, they And then they go water. to make sure that everyone thinks that it's a gay pact. They leave some mineral water yeah. behind. And that was like part... Yeah, I just find... You, I, that's an interesting thing about the, the, the speed of the change of certain things within pop culture. Mm. That you, Whereas, you know, there are some things which run all the way through. Certain films, you're right, and certain comedy things don't translate because the way yeah. of receiving them has changed so much as well. Mm. It's not... You know, I remember going down to the video shop to vent, you know, rent out on VHS, Heathers. What was it going to be like? There's a big clunky box. You know, all of these things. That Three show. days to you watch Films it. used to come in a clunky Only box. One day. I was the person renting them out. That oh, was, were you? Yeah, that was, that was my long-standing job. Well, if yeah, I got sacked from a lot of jobs. <laughs> but I had that on for a long time. Yeah, the clunky box. This is very interesting to me that you are... Uh, Obviously quite a rebellious person because you were basically expelled from boarding school and you've been sacked from a number of jobs. Are you, what are you like? Are you a trickster? What is going on no, with you? No, actually, being... to be honest, um, I'm just exaggerating lines sound cool. <laughs> so um, I did get expelled from one school, not my boarding school, the one I went to afterwards, and that was simply for drugs. Um, and that's not that rebellious. That was just unlucky. Um. And then... My jobs, no, I diligently stayed at my job at Dixie Fried Chicken in Chelmsford for quite a long time and the video shop job, but I, I would just, it would get to Saturday morning and I would just not turn up. Ha. Um, Which so. is fair enough. Like, oh, Yeah, like there'd be a boy a with a motorbike a and he'd be like, do you want to go to Brentwood? And I'd be You'd thinking, be a fool well, to do, say no. yeah, do I want to do my crappy job at Pizza Hut? Actually, I stayed at Pizza Hut for a long time. Tips were amazing. Um, but actually, I got a, a 
um, warning there for wearing a skirt that was too short. Who so, would have thought a hat would be so conservative? I know. <laughs> oh no! I think well now it, now it's yurt, of course, isn't it? It's a yurt. <laughs> that Dixie fried chicken makes me. Have you? I don't know if you ever read Viz. There is a really. Is Viz still going? Yeah, and it's brilliant. How is it's that possible? Absolutely fantastic. Liam Barney, Barney, who's been on this before, who wrote it. Uh, they they do a strip called Drunken Bakers, which is all about these two just drunk bakers. It's, it's beautiful and it's sad. And there's one called Whoops Isle Apocalypse, which is all about the people waiting, waiting for the reductions. When when are they going to do the, the final reduction so they can get cheap meats <laughs> and stuff? Uh, the, uh, the Mail Online, which is about just an angry man reading the Daily Mail online. Uh, but they have one called Hen Cabin. Which is about the worst of the chicken shops, you know, where they're always just buying festering bits of pigeon and then basting them. So anyway, I highly recommend it. I always, I've recommended Viz before on the show because I think so many people don't know it's still there and they also don't know that it's really brilliant and it's really, a lot of it is dark and fantastic and beautiful and sad. And, and Barney's also righteous book, as well, weirdly, in a way that I don't think it maybe was 20 yeah, years ago. Yeah, no, it's all about weighing your own head 20 years ago, wasn't it? <laughs> That now they're always making jokes about Brian Cox, which are very. Uh, which one's best, Brian Cox or Brian Cox? They do Brian Cox versus Brian Cox, uh, and things. Like, but it is really, um, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. And, and Barney has written two books, uh, Drunken Baker, which is a, and a fantastic. It's a monologue of this guy who's a broken guy who's still working in the bakery shop that no one comes to because of all the, the way the high street is trying mm. to remember how to make a Battenberg while pissed and remembering the sadness <laughs> of his childhood. And it's fucking beautiful, and a lot of it's it's kind of rhyming as well. And he's written a new one called Coke Town, which is. Even even more, which is kind of partly based around Preston and stuff. And I think because he comes from Viz, there will be people who don't realise that these books are beautiful mm. and fascinating and brilliant and a proper... But, again, things are meant to be categorised very carefully, aren't they? And, and people get worried if it's not in that category. Well, I can't, we can't review that for the London Review of Books. Mm. It's from Viz. And then one day <laughs> yeah, Viz will be accepted by the London Review of Books and I'll go, we don't like Viz anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we we need to run out of time because you have to 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 uh, run off. But will, will you return to children's books as well, or is that when you were saying that that dark world is that gone now? Is is the use of that that you that that bit that helped you at that point? You think oh, I can't go back there. Um, good question. I I love the children's books and I've put a lot of effort into world building, but there seems to be a kind of paradox with children's books where. You, you're not allowed to say that they're a lesser form and you're not allowed to say anything bad about them. But when it comes to the reality, people don't take them as seriously out there. And even all the people that say that they take them seriously don't really take them seriously. So there was a lot of, well, when are you going to write another adult book? And, you know, well, you've written three children's books now, but they don't really count. And and I really love them and I really stand by them. So, I, I yeah, I'd love to do another one, but... Um, slightly on the back burner for now, but they glow in the dark. The hudbacks, they're amazing, and they. That's sort of... a thing you should be able to do with an adult book. That's very unfair. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? Yeah, you get all of that stuff. Have some but neon then... blood in it, just oh, for a that's bit. You good. know. Yeah, you turn page ninety six, and suddenly, it, yeah. I don't know, the capsule. Anyway, yeah, I'll mention it's Canon Gate. They love doing Thank things. Like that. Yeah, I, I know Canon Gate is very on. keen on working out different ways of creating retinal damage uh, for their readers. Yeah, it's true, yeah, and I frightening experiences. Some kind of explosive neon. Yes, and this—I just want to ask you because you were saying you were doing a reading in the in in the Midlands, and you then realised people sat there going, "What are we doing here? Uh, what have you found so far? The moments where what, what has been the reception when you've been going into different places and reading out bits from the book? What, um, what, is there anything that surprised you, which is what you've thought is you know mundane or, or something that just won't shock, and then going ah, and then vice versa? Well, yeah. What interested me was I went from 
a, a more, let's call them, middle-aged audience at this wonderful bookshop event one night. And then I went to Warwick University to read to younger, possibly guessing a tiny bit more millennial and switched on type audience and so I wondered what they would be like and as soon as I started reading they started laughing Mm. and I thought oh thank god for that and then I've got there's a bit where they're looking at porn early on in the book and because of the school wi-fi controls all they can bring up is like old Victorian erotica (laughs) and so they bring up these images of women and they they're kind of repelled by their quotes dark bushes and then um Donya one of the characters is worried that they're all going to be turned lesbian which means wearing boots with laces and having to drive your own car (laughs) and lines like that I kind of as I was writing it I thought well people will get why this is funny won't they that it's okay to make this joke and these you know, 20-somethings were absolutely falling about all of that. And then the experts that turn up, the eating disorder men, have you got to them yet? No, not yet. Tony and Dominic, who come to cure the girls of their eating disorders, um, they're kind of funny as well. So, um, so yeah, they were all laughing at those bits. So, I've yeah, I've just been thrilled, really, with the response that it it really is funny and it's not so dark that you can't laugh. When you're writing comedy, is because obviously with us as, as stand-ups and I'm sure we've talked about this before when you think of a funny idea you try it on stage you get instant feedback and that's so like calming in a way how do you find to, like that period between having thought of it having written it having like perfected it and then waiting 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 f- to see how the feedback is in terms of like people laughing and things like that I don't know I think I'm slightly jealous of your jobs because I think that would be really amazing to get that feedback all the time and it's um, like one of my sort of secret yearnings is to do that kind of thing but um, yeah with me sitting in my room for a few months with nobody laughing I don't know it's a bit like um, are you Bojack fans yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so that long joke that ends with the, what is it, the bag of mulch in the back of the car. So there's a joke that is really unfunny that his girlfriend tells and you think, what was the point of that? And then we're into a second joke by the time we get the punchline to the first joke. And it, I think it feels a bit like that, being a novelist trying to write funny. You just, you don't know. You're going to stick the bag of mulch in there at some point and will anyone notice all they care? I wonder if that's generally with the writing because I've found the book that the the one that I, I wrote recently, which is I get people saying, "Oh, everyone's staring me on the train because because they because um, I'm laughing out loud." And I, and I look at it now and I go, "I don't think there are any jokes in it because I'm, it's not as immediate as what we do." There, boom, there we go. Whereas I go because I had to rewrite it four times. To me, I was, I'm not quite. I, I thought I thought I've written a very serious book. It turns out there's still jokes in it. That's good. Yeah. I still have a flippancy that was required. Do you ever kind of try and look out for people reading your book in public just to see if you can get a bit of a thrill of the of the smiles and the laughs? That would be so thrilling. But I've literally never seen anybody read my books in public. Oh my no, I've uh, I've exactly the same. I've got I, friends I don't see that enough have. of mine in charity shops. It means people haven't been buying it. Or it means people have been buying it, they loved it, passing it on. You don't yeah, want it in charity so. shops. No, but if, if you sold loads of them, like if you're Ian Rankin or someone like that, yes. they, that's, that's a, yeah. But people, it meant that somebody either died or gave it away. That's sad. Yeah, there is someone who, I can't remember who we had on this, who said they found the copy in a charity shop that they'd given to their mum and dad. <laughs> Whoa! Oh my God. <laughs> no, that's wrong. Um, you, you've got to go to a meeting. So we will. Yes, uh, thank you so um, much. Oligarchy is out now. It's Scarlett Thomas. It's, uh, I'm halfway through it. It's absolutely fantastic. And 
And I, I, I love the fact you were saying, because that's what I, th- I think is very exciting about I I had no expectations when I, I opened any book, and it's that bit where you go, I don't know if this is meant to be funny or not. It's like the film Happiness by Todd Serrano. <laughs> I love that. It's one yeah. of my favourite films. Oh, my God, he's and amazing. if you sit in Incredible. an audience with that. Yeah. And yeah. in terms of, like, how do you deftly manage that complicated tone? You yeah. know, it's incredible. Like, what an achievement. God, maybe I won't go to my meeting. Let's just stay here all day and talk about films. Oh, Todd's, yeah, ha- happiness. In me. Oh, my and God. The, do you, have you seen the sequel, Life During Wartime? No, but what's it called? Um, the one that's got the two stories in it. Um, oh, Bell and Sebastian did the soundtrack for the yeah, storytelling. Yeah, storytelling. oh, my God, that's mm. also... And in, again, you just never quite know. And then don't sometimes know what you're you watching. Go, I don't know why these things are in here. So, you know that when you start worrying about the heads of the creators and go, why was that in there in yeah. the first place? Yes. Sorry, you have got a meeting to go to. Yes, Scott, it's been so lovely much. to hang out uh, with you. And uh, oligarchies are said out now, Canongate, and uh, bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. A reminder, Robin and Josie will be live at the Royal Albert Hall on May 17, 2020, as part of Sea Shambles, our huge night of science and comedy and music celebrating the ocean. It's the uh, the sequel to Space Shambles from 2018. Tickets for that are on sale now. CosmicShambles.com slash Sea Shambles. Sea Shambles, not whatever I just said. CosmicShambles.com slash Sea Shambles. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our Patreon supporters. Uh, Subscribe on wherever the thing is that you use to listen to podcasts. Uh, Excellent sentence there. Uh, Five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts really help us out as well. Have yourself an excellent week. We will be back with a brand new episode next Thursday. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.